Today, we'll be discussing what goes into auditioning for a part in a TV show or movie. And then we'll also be looking at the ketogenic diet in medicine. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. And every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I'll question him about that. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health, and then grills me on that topic. Today, we're going to be talking about the ketogenic diet in medicine. But first, I'm going to ask Ali about the auditioning process. So, Ali, you've been in several movies and TV shows. You know, you've been in movies like Goon, uh, which I love, My Spy, which my kids love, uh, and TV shows. Uh, you've been in Designated Survivor with uh, Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, you've been in the kids' TV show Oz Squad. So I was really curious, like, about this whole auditioning process and how that works. Um, can you, like, go back and recall your very first audition? My first audition would have been unmemorable. Um, I've never heard of that TV show. <laughs> yes. Is that it's good? It was a hit. It was. Uh, it lives in every single actor's uh, mind. It's when you go in and you know you are insignificant as a person because there's 20 other people who look like you in the auditioning room, uh, in the casting room, and then also uh, you know that you did such an insignificant job that you will never hear back from the people um, who are uh, who are in charge of hiring you. And I'll tell you something, I don't care about that. This is a very important part of my life. I was very pathetically obsessed with uh, the Food Network. I wanted a show on the Food Network. I was a chef, and I was like, I could do this. It's a bit naive. It basically came from me watching chefs on television, not knowing a thing about what is involved, but just seeing their personality on television and saying, you know what? I can do what they're doing. However naive that might have been, I was really like, this was my thing. I wanted to get into that world. And I was like, you know, auditioning a fair amount for that, for, for TV shows. But it got to a point where, you know, my phone would ring and I'd be like, hello, Food Network. Oh, sorry, mom. I'm expecting a call. Like I was so, it was awful. Because of that time that I had in that world, and because of how low I, I was, and because of how obsessed I was with every single thing I did, by the time acting came around, and I, it was, I was well into my 30s at the time, I was like, I'm never going to go there again. I'm never going to be that person again. So I really do do an audition, and then I forget about it. I don't go home. I don't wait for the emails. I don't like worry. I do my best in the moment, and you realize that's all you can do. But that um, not having um, not having desperation reek off you, that is something that you can't you can't fake it. Many actors have talked about this. You can't fake. It's when Jason Bateman talks about how he was finally done with this industry. Screw it. I can't catch a break. Screw Hollywood. I'm done. And then Arrested Development was like, we like this guy. He really uh, he really has a I don't give a crap about anything attitude. And Jason was like, that's just how I actually felt. I just didn't care anymore. And Hollywood somehow likes that, and, and the industry somehow likes that. So I've had a lot of uh, unmemorable auditions, including probably my first 10. 
where I really didn't know what I was doing. And uh, I don't actually remember them, if you can believe that, because I was at a place where I was like, forget it. I'm just going to walk out of here. <laughs> They've been blocked out for various yes, reasons. Correct. But so why don't we go back to something you said? So you had talked about you were doing stand up, you were kind of looking into a cooking show, and which which is different. Right? That's not really it's it's performing. It's not really acting. You're not playing a different character. So how did you go from like comedy to actually acting? Like, how did that come about? If anybody tells you that luck doesn't play a role in this, they're lying to themselves. There's definitely an element of luck. You can control a certain amount of this. You control how much you work on your craft, but right place, right time. I mean, there's there's a lot to be said about that. I was a, you know, South Asian, Pakistani chef in Montreal who did stand-up comedy. Primarily, I was a chef. Kevin Tierney, God rest his soul, director, asks my friend Bill. Bill is a guy who, uh, Bill Brownstein writes for the Montreal Gazette, Arts and Life column. Kevin Tierney says, I'm looking for a guy uh, to play a role in my next film. Somebody who could play, um, you know, South Asian uh, chef. And Bill Brownstein goes, are you kidding? I'll do you one better. I'll give you somebody who's already a South Asian chef and he's a comedian. And Kevin's like, well, I got to see this guy. So because of Bill having seen me recently at some horrific, I'm sure, open mic room where, you know, we were interrupting the people in the room with our comedy, but Bill happened to be there and saw us and saw me. I was top of his mind. Kevin asks him, I go in and, you know, there was really only three of us South Asian actors at the time too. So I wound up doing a, a good job in the audition and bringing my actual chef experience and, and, and that reality to the world. And Kevin Tierney booked me. So that was my, that was my first role. And it had a lot to do with a nice connection that Kevin and I had. And you can't always have that. Some people are kind of standoffish in that room. They don't want to have their hands shook pre-COVID, you know, wow. they just don't want to be touched. They're like, I'm going to see 20 people today. Please don't shake my hand. Please don't come near me. Just got, yeah, let's just see what you got. And that's it. Whereas I was able to form a nice connection with, uh, with Kevin. We and what project friend. was that? That was called French Immersion. That was the first movie I ever did. And it was a pretty big budget, large scale movie. So that's, that's luck. I should have done a bunch of garbage, bunch of trash before getting to the stage where I could do French Immersion. But they had a ton of faith in me and, and it was yeah, very, very lucky. So then how do things move from there? Because, uh, like, I don't even know. Like, that was that was the situation where you kind of were uh, given some uh, – Kevin was given your name through word of mouth. But how do you get an audition? And I, and I know, like, just from, like, you know, <laughs> watching TV shows and entourage and things like that, that you often need to have an agent – but did you have an agent at the beginning? And then how do you get an agent? Does your agent have to get you? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, I think stand-up comedy helped me a huge amount in that regard because I had an agent who believed in me when there was quite literally nothing to believe in. Like an open mic comic making not even like five grand a year in comedy. And, uh, and she was like, I would like to rep you. I was like, okay, I'm not sure what you're repping. But how did she even hear about you i um i i was just a guy on the stand-up comedy scene and there was about say let's say 
30 of us doing comedy regularly in Montreal. And um, I was, I guess, one of the funnier ones. And and I also, she, you know, these agents also look at their rosters. If she had three brown bald guys on her roster already, <laughs> it, I wouldn't have been of interest. Right. But she's like, okay, I need a guy with comedic timing. That's often in the breakdown. Looking for someone with great comedic timing is something you'll often see. Um, or comedic timing is an asset. Improv is an asset. This kind of stuff, right? Because those go along the the, the way the director and the writer and the producers work. Um, some people don't want any improv. They want you to like, hey, do you know how to read? And then say lines. That's what we need because we don't want you to stray from any of this. You know, Shonda Rhimes famously talks about that. You're free to deliver the line however you want, but don't stray from the script because I wrote these words for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. That's her way of looking at things. So anyway... Um, yeah, I had this agent, Kim, who believed in me from day one, and then she was very happy. Obviously, I got French immersion, and it's no different from, you know, uh, having a resume with something on it versus having nothing on the resume. You know how when you're a young kid, you're like, how am I going to get experience if no one gives me experience? It's kind of that, although now we're seeing, and one of the big examples in my mind is that that young girl whose name I forget, but she's in uh, Never Have I Ever, right? right. The, uh, the Mindy Kaling show. Yeah. She was, I don't even know if she was in acting. I think she just went out for a very open casting call for um for Mindy project Mindy Kaling's project she's Mississauga you know out right outside the Toronto GTA is where she's based next thing you know she's on a a huge Hollywood show backed by uh, one of the, the biggest comedians and a big producer in, in, in Hollywood. So there is a little bit of that sometimes people want to find the the diamond in the rough but in general I think you got to have some decent work uh, to be to be considered, and also sometimes having a decent agent makes a difference. And I I remember once going to a a, a conference, an actors conference, and you know you sort of pick like like any conference you would have gone to. You pick what do you want to do right. at eleven? What do you want to attend at twelve? What do you, so I attend something at two o'clock called something with your agent. I don't even remember what it was called. But when it was time for people to ask questions. This is one of the saddest things I, I saw, and I was—I felt so blessed to have an agent who I have a good relationship with. My agent has a massive roster, and he's one of the best agents in the best, one of the best agencies in this city, in in, in this country. Uh, his father started the agency, and it's his son, and he represents me, and he makes me feel like I'm one of five clients when, in fact, their roster is well over a hundred people. But I heard somebody in the question say, "What happens if your agent?" you know, doesn't really have time to see you. Like I haven't seen my agent in a few months and I can't really get in touch with them. And I was like, what? That's a thing? <laughs> months? And I saw a number of people nod in oh, agreement. Wow. And the suggestion was even sadder than the question. The, the person said, you know what you can do? Sometimes it's great. Just stay on your agent's radar. So if you're downtown, you're by their office, get a coffee and just drop off the coffee in their office. Let's say they're on the phone, just wave to them and just be like, hey, got you a coffee. And, and you can put that down maybe on their assistant's desk or put that down on their desk and just, just kind of a little touch in. And I was like, what? Buying coffee for someone who's not even talking to you or returning your call? I was like, what, is, what world is this? This is awful. This is, but that is a reality for many actors as well. So, so yeah, in those situations, it sounds like you're working for the agent as opposed yeah. to the agent working oh, for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are that, that dynamic that definitely does exist with certain clients. They're just not bookable for any variety of reasons. Their own attitude, their own look, their the effort they're putting in. And sometimes some great actors just kind of fall through the cracks a little bit.
But then, so, and do people move between agents? Because you talked about a, about a woman at the beginning, but now you have a, a yes. guy. So how does yeah. that work? Well, I moved from Montreal to Toronto. And originally the thoughts were that, you know, you don't, doesn't matter in this day and age, technology being what it is, it's okay to have an agent in a different city from where you live. But then I got the feeling that, you know, it's good to have your agent come to events with you and be at places and people know them because they've seen them around. And um, yeah, I just, a friend of mine referred me in his, uh, in his agency and uh, a gentleman named Mike picked me up, Michael Carr. And then Michael Carr, very soon after picking me up, uh, sent the email to everybody saying he's leaving to LA. I was like, great. Oh. So I, I lost him almost as soon as I got him within a month or two. And then, um, you know, I went to the head of the agency. I was like, can I just have a meeting with you guys? And I said, guys, listen, I, uh, basically you've given me a month with the agency and then I'm kind of, you know, quote unquote on the street. Um, but, um, I wondered if you could give me any advice, if there's anybody you knew who I could contact in this industry, who would be looking for somebody who looks like this, because they used to put their roster up and you could see who represents who. That's not always the case. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go to Gersh in LA, the Gersh website is just a white page with the word Gersh in the top left-hand corner. You can't even click on anything. <laughs> it just says Gersh in the address. That's it. Or this is where it used to be a few years ago when I looked. Um, so, as luck would have it, the father and son duo, the, the the Goldhars, Larry Goldhar, who started the characters agency, his son Ryan, who's now my agent, said to me, um, we were actually going to ask you if you wanted to uh, join with us. It's like, what? I was like asking if they could help me out there in right. the world, you know, because I lost my agent in the agency. And they're like, we'd like to have you, you know, represent us. And I was wearing a, a Montreal uh, Canadiens hat at the time. And Larry was like, we're going to have to do something about that hat. We don't want to see that hat here anymore in our Toronto office, mm -hmm. but otherwise we'd love to have you. So, you know, I'm forever indebted to them and you could, you could promise me anything really. And I, there's, there's almost no chance that I would leave that agency. I, uh, I, I love my story, the or, organic way that I came up in this agency and I love all the work I do with them. And I, yeah, it's a, this is a great place to be. And I, I, I know exactly how lucky I am. Again, luck plays a role there too. Like it just so happens that this person saw this person and then this happened and this happened. And then I got this meeting. And so not always easy, not an easy world. And then the auditioning itself is just a huge, I mean, some people are fantastic. You know, it's no different from school where some people are so unbelievably bright, but are just not good test takers. Mm-hmm. That's the way I feel about auditioning. It's a whole other beast. Acting on camera and then, uh, you know, auditioning on camera feels like, oh, it's the same thing. It really is. You know, you're really, I mean, acting in general is make-believe, but auditioning is four levels even higher of make-believe. There's really nobody there to guide you. And so it's, it's tough. So, yeah, so let's maybe go through that process. So you, because you have an agent, you'll... How do they contact you? Just maybe just take me through that. So how they contact sure. you, then you show up, what happens when you show up? Like okay, so I'll start at the production level. So the production, whether it be TV or, or film or web or whatever, is the production needs to cast, right? So they need people in their uh, film. They can't just hire their friends. Otherwise, there are bodies who, you know, will accuse them of nepotism and not giving a fair chance to, you know, all actors and this kind of stuff. So they have to. They're obliged to go through casting agencies. And casting agencies are these intermediary bodies. 
that and and, and houses, you know, casting agents' houses where um, pre-COVID, in any case, I would go, I would show up. And this is the this is the point of living close to the living in the city or close to the city that you work in too, because if you lived like two hours away and had to drive in for a three minute audition, it really does feel uh, very soul sucking. So you you drive into a place and they say, um, well, well, first of all, the casting agency uh, puts up a um, a notice that all the casting uh, that all the uh, what do you call it agents. Uh, acting age, talent agents have access to, right? So for this film, they're looking for a Swiss person. They're looking for a, a black female. They're looking for a small, uh, a little person, right? Ali Hassan's not getting called for that. Right. If they say we're looking for somebody to play a gym teacher, I'm probably not getting called for that. If they okay, detective, any ethnicity. Okay, now they'll be like, what do you think of Ali Hassan? They'll send my headshot in. What do you think of Ali Hassan for the role of detective and also for this, you know, um, vaguely brown guy here? Yeah, great. Let's let's see him. So my agency will send me for auditions based on stuff that they've pitched me for. When And, you know, the agency will be like, yeah, we'd love to see them, have them come in at this time. So you go and then that casting agency has the work of sort of whittling down this list of like whatever hundreds of people that they've seen into whatever the producer wants. Sometimes a producer for whatever role goes, just give me somebody. I don't care who it is. The role's not important enough for me to spend time on this. Or it's like, this is one of the leads. So narrow this down to your top five and let's take it from there. You know, this is all in the producers, whatever level of, um, you know, control they like to have on their production. So, but who do you meet with uh, that first one? So your agent has yeah. kind of put you forward. They're like, yeah, come down. And so who, who is in that, those initial meetings? Yeah. So in the casting agency, great question. The first time typically, now it can, it can change, but typically it's the casting agent themselves. It's an assistant that they have who's probably filming. And then it's another person that they've hired to be the reader. So typically three people in a room, sometimes two. Or if, you know, if time is of, these are all these different scenarios that can happen. If time is of essence, you can also have your first audition with, hi, this is the producer, this is the director, this is the this person, this is this person, right? Um, I'll tell you one very memorable auditioning story before we move on. Got called in to, uh, to, to audition for uh, an animated film. I'll leave it blank you know which which film it was so no one can research this and and uh send this these people hate mail and you know it was well-intentioned but still an awful moment it's for an animated film uh partly animated and i was going to be doing actual work but it was going to require stunt work if i if i did it i was going to be a cab driver who does a stunt so pakistani cab driver is a role casting agent or agent's assistant who was working that day says to me okay ali so you saw what the role is for let me ask you something are you Paki? Oh my God. I was like, oh, Pakistani. Yes, I am Pakistani. It's kind of thrown off. I was like, are people still not aware that that's not an abbreviation? <laughs> so anyway, I leave that day. Um, whatever it is about a, a, a you know, a, an ethnic slur, uh, it, 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 it brings out the best in me. I get called for what's called a callback. They oh want boy. to see you a second time. This time the producer's in the room with that same casting agent. I go, fine, great. You know, at least civilized person who's traveled around the world maybe a little bit, has some money, has seen some stuff. Producer goes, Ali, let me ask you something. I see this role you're doing. We're doing it in English, but I wanted to know, do you speak Paki? 
like, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. What world am I living in here? So uh, those ones you kind of remember for all the wrong reasons. Didn't even get the role in the end. Went to a stunt person. Went to a stuntman because the stunt was going to be too involved of this guy being lifted out of his cab. But um, anyway, so th th that does the point of that story really was that you could have the producer or the director or the writer in on a second second reading on a callback. Uh, often that'll happen. If they have you back, then the you know people who are making this movie want to maybe have a have a say in should we go with this person or not. So a callback's always a good scene. You're getting a little closer to landing the role. And sometimes after a callback, they go, we'd like to put a pin in Ali's schedule. Can he be available for April 10th to 12th, for example? And then they go, yeah, we don't, uh, we don't need him. You can release the pin. Release oh, well. the hold, they say. And then you go, I hate all of you. But not really. I, it is what it is. And it's not... I'm very lucky to have a couple of different lives, stand-up comedy, broadcasting, you know, writing, a bunch of different things. So I'm in a world where acting doesn't sort of define me or control me. Um, I, I didn't, I never gave it that power, having learned from my Food Network obsessed days. Whereas, you know, you have somebody who's like, you know, pushing 30 and they're a server in a bar and they're sort of like, I can't be here forever. This can't be my life. I cannot, you know, my parents told me I was more than this. I believe I'm more than this. I cannot be just a server forever. And so when they go for auditions, sadly, the desperation is definitely there. I, that designated survivor that you spoke about in the beginning, mm -hmm. when you were just sort of saying what I've been, that was one of the most awful. I loved being on that show. And I loved when I was in the, the, the room with the casting agent, but that waiting room was one of the most awful things I've ever seen. Because I think everybody was like, oh my God, designated survivor, shooting in Toronto. Uh, I might have a scene with Kiefer Sutherland. This could make me, this could break. And I have never felt stress and tension in a room. I walked into the room and, you know, people like deep breathing and people pacing. And I was like, every single person putting out this terrible energy. And I was like, ah, I'm just going to wait out in the hallway. And so I just waited in the hallway instead. And what happened? I got that role. And I do believe it's because... Unlike everybody in that room, I was like, oh, I could take this or leave it. It doesn't matter. If I get it, I'll be extremely happy. But I, there's no way that this controls me because I have other stuff. I, I think having four kids also gives you some perspective. It's like, man, come on. I got, I got other stuff to do. Any other kind of memorable auditions, either from the, the things we talked, the movies and TV shows we talked about before or from other things? Either really bad, really good ones that got away was there was there ever one that you auditioned for that like oh my gosh if i got that role i'd be like a superstar well, in the food world definitely there was a couple where it was me and somebody else so in the food world they tell you they tell you for some reason which they really shouldn't but they tell you it's you and another person and so it happened twice. And the last time it happened, it's kind of like the end of my auditioning. I didn't really audition anymore. Then it was just like, I, I think my own, um, you know, I, I was known enough that people just sort of call me in. Ali, let's have you test for this. And okay, thank you so much. So I don't go into a audition room or casting room. Somebody just wants to see me. So it's a bit of a different process at this point, just because I've made a name for myself in the world. And, and I think people are aware of what I'm capable of, but they want to see me on screen. Does this work? Do, will this, is this the right energy? That type of thing. But the last time it was a show called Chef in Your Ear. And I, it was me and somebody else. And in the end, I was, it was really like, 
because uh, I, I I was obsessed with being on the Food Network for almost a decade, you know, and at the beginning, I was so unbelievably underqualified, unqualified, under suggests there was qualifications. <laughs> but I'm talking completely non-qualified. You know, I didn't, I had a, like a little catering spot that nobody had heard of in Montreal and I'm trying to be on a, like a national food show and they were like, yeah, I, I don't understand. You don't even really own a restaurant. You don't have a brand. You don't, you don't have a line of anything. Like, who are you? What are you trying to do here? And I was definitely, you know, outmatched by everybody else on the Food Network and I didn't belong there. But then you work and you work and you work and you learn and you, you know, all this hundreds of thousands of people that I've done catering events for and you build your personality and you start to understand who you are in front of a camera and how to use that camera to your advantage, all these things. And then it's me versus somebody. He was a sketch performer and they said, listen, Ali, they're leaning towards him because to be honest, the, uh, the network's worried about how much you know about food i was like what are you saying i'm overqualified now in in 10 years that's basically what happened over the span of 10 years because the food network has these armchair chefs you know armchair viewers uh who never cooked anything in their life but in their hearts know that they could if you know there was some kind of desperate emergency they could probably do it but mm -hmm. but the food network gives them some calmness and it gives them some peace tranquility of some kind and somehow that peace and tranquility would be completely shaken if I said the word, uh, you know, bouillabaisse or mise en place or something. It would just mess people up so badly. So that's what you see in a lot of shows. You have completely like a lay person. John Catucci is a good friend of mine, hosts a show in Canada called um, You Gotta Eat Here. Right. And John had told me, hey, man, I, I could barely fry an egg. And he has like four cookbooks. Right, because he goes to all these places and and they use their those recipes and John's got of his face on four different cookbooks. Can't fry an egg. I'm sure by now he can. But years ago he was like, yeah, man, I really don't know anything about a kitchen. And I think that's what the Food Network wa Network wanted. So now with all my knowledge, I was desperately trying to pr prove that I'm a layperson. I can speak like the rest of you common folk. I can say regular <laughs> stuff. But yeah, I lost that one in the end because somebody knew less than me. Which is uh, that's not how they it's not how the world usually works. We're going for the less qualified person. But anyway, what a what a wonderful world this is. Just changing gears for a sec. What about during COVID? Like, so can you do remote auditioning? How does that work? Yeah, I am. I'm a big fan of a self tape. I really like uh, you know just my wife and I in our awful kitchen. You know, it, this is again like people, you know are probably sending auditions where it looks like they tried very hard. They've got the, the tech sort of swinging in at the beginning. Here it is, the scene. And then, you know, everything, call my agent here. Here's the information. Click on this. Basically like a mini, you know, like a mini TikTok video, but it's an audition. Whereas we just, you know, in half-assed lighting in my kitchen, my wife, we make use of her soft-spoken voice and we do the thing. And it's really just about the scene. And we can do it a number of times till we're both happy with it. And she gives me really good advice and that's it. And it's been very successful. And I, so I really like the self-tape. Now there's something new, Zoom audition. We, mm -hmm. we like to schedule you in for a Zoom audition. That's maybe the worst experience uh, <laughs> any actor ever has to go through because the joy of the auditions, at least for me, was to like meet people and see them and hi, how are you? Show off a little bit of your personality and have like a human connection. This is just somebody like clicking on a computer. Going, okay, next. Yeah, you're next. You're on deck. Okay, come in. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And you're like, 
I don't know, you never get to feel super comfortable. So a self-tape was already a challenge years ago until we got to a place that we're comfortable with. Zoom auditions, I don't know if I'll ever be 100% comfortable with that. So if they always have a self-tape option, I'll take that. And have you gotten roles from self-tapes and... Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Self tapes. We have a great, we have a great, my, my wife's my lucky charm. I think, you know, <laughs> um, when I started in acting the, they said that you'll get one out of 30 things that you audition for. And I got three things in a row, French immersion, breakaway and goon. This is in 2011. And I was like, they were wrong, baby. And you know what? They weren't wrong because then I went 90 auditions without getting a goddamn thing. So it all evens out in the watch. But I have found self-tapes with my wife. It's about half that. It's like one out of every 12 or so. You know, almost, almost a third of that. My wife, uh, I don't know, magic charm. It works well. Or it's the piss yellow walls that we have in our kitchen. Something's working, whatever it is. Uh, or the not trying too hard. Something's, uh, you know. Kids, you also cannot try too hard and see success. Just uh, keep that in mind. Now, Asif, I want to talk to you about the ketogenic diet. Right now, keto is all the rage, but it was actually a few years ago. I'm walking with my friend, Ephthemios, Greek god of a man, works out a ton, I'm talking to him about how he's eating his diet. And he tells me he really likes to eat like in a ketogenic, uh, so with a ketogenic emphasis on his diet. And I was like, man, it's like the 10th time I've heard about keto this week. What, what is this? He goes, well, actually, um, my my niece has type one diabetes, right? Juvenile diabetes. She, uh, she has been, it's been recommended to her like over a decade ago that she eat uh, ketogenically, or she eats to, to, to stay in ketogenesis. Is that the term? Keto Keto we say ketosis. Ketosis, but yeah. ketosis, yeah. exactly. Right. And that is what he said as well. I don't want to mess, I don't want to make it seem like he didn't know what he was talking about. Um, but it was just funny because it, he'd known about it for a long time. And I told him, I go, this is what it feels. This is what it must feel like. Because as soon as I could take the bus from the South Shore of Montreal into Montreal, we'd go to these Vietnamese restaurants and we'd eat sriracha. It would be right there on the table. And then I'm in my 30s and you have all these people acting like they invented sriracha. Have you heard of this thing? It's called sriracha. Anyway, so that's, <laughs> I feel like, if Themios, poor guy, had known about the ketogenic diet for years because of his niece. And now everybody was like, yeah, there's this thing called keto. He's like, I know, I get it. But, uh, but I was pretty interested in, in how this way of eating helps uh, people in general, especially those who want to stay healthy and people who are... Uh, I just was on a set with three actors. All of them eat vegan keto. I was like, what? Isn't it tough enough, the vegan thing? Anyway, so actors are doing it. Performers are doing it. And also, from what I had heard, a child with diabetes uh, was doing it. So what is this diet and how does it help kids with, uh, with diabetes? So, right, we'll get to diabetes maybe in just a little bit. And, of course, I can also talk about how I see patients for the ketogenic diet for epilepsy because I see a lot of patients like that. But let's take a step back even further and just talk about what the ketogenic diet is. So we get a lot of our calories from carbohydrates, right? Traditionally, that's how we do it. And uh, we use those carbohydrates for fuel, and that's what powers our body, our brain, functioning, everything. But what the ketogenic diet does is it decreases your carbohydrate intake significantly. So then you're forced to use other sources of fuel. And the main source of fuel that you use in the, uh, in the ketogenic diet is from fat. 
And what happens with fat is so you're using an alternate source of fuel and you're mobilizing fats to give you energy. The, a byproduct of that is what's called ketone bodies. So whenever you're not using carbs and you're using fat for your energy, it's creating these ketones. So that's the idea of the ketogenic diet. It's actually putting you into a starvation state. And when you say body, you don't mean it's not like a, like a beach body? Like I've got a real ketone body. That's not, you're talking about bodies as in properties of some kind. Correct. Yes. Okay. Ketone, okay. ketone bodies. Your your buddy may have a ketone shaped body from uh, from his from his weight loss and things like that and working out. But yeah, ketone bodies just the name of the molecule that occurs mm-hmm. uh, uh, with this starvation state. So you know, if someone was on a hunger strike or something like that, they would obviously go into ketosis and you start using up your fat. Uh, and and so and that's one of the reasons which we'll get to later where how it causes weight loss, right? Because it's using these fat stores uh, uh, and the fat from your diet to to lose weight. Right, because normally diets, from what we hear, the bad thing about diets is diet, especially when you're actually starving yourself, you retain fat, right? Because your body goes, oh man, we got to retain this. We don't know what's happening here. We're not getting enough nutrients. So this is uh, a ketogenic diet. Is It flips that where you do directly lose your fat. Yeah, your 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 body is is telling the diet is creating a situation where your body is learning to utilize fat as your primary source of fuel. Right, that's that's one way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So, in about the nineteen twenties, it was used. It started to be used in North America for epilepsy. And uh, there's a, different people who kind of looked at it. There's a, several publications. Uh, Russell Wilder was a doctor at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, he was one of the first people to publish on it. And they use a very specific ratio uh, of what we call uh, a four to one ratio. So the, it's the ratio of fat to protein and carbs. So, for example, the typical North American diet is 20 to 30% calories from fat. 50 to 75% from carbs and 15 to 20% from protein. When you're doing a, the strict ketogenic diet that we use for epilepsy, it's 90% of calories from fat, wow. 6% from protein and 4% from carbs. So a ton of fat and really restrictive protein and carbs. Now I'm just going to tell you right away, that's not the diet that your friend was using and people using to weight loss. They use a different, less restrictive diet, but we're talking about the one that we use for epilepsy. Right. Right. And when you say fat, are we, I mean, I'm sure you're going to get into it, but are you talking about like avocado or are you talking about it doesn't matter, like a, a, a fatty piece of meat or would you stay away from fatty piece of meat? Cause then that has the protein also. No, all those things. Uh, and, uh, really it's because it comes down to a lot. There's a lot of weighing involved with this, this type of diet, when we're using it for patients with epilepsy, we really, the, the, the responsibility falls on the family a lot, the parents and the patients to measure quantities. They have to buy special scales. You can't just use like a regular kitchen scale. You have to use a more exact types kitchen scale uh, because you're measuring these very exact quantities and measuring them out. So it's sort of what you eat as well. And I can, I'll, I'll go through maybe a sample menu in a few minutes uh, of what you do, but it's also the, 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 it's the type of food, but the quantity, and you really have to measure them out uh, carefully. And so what happens is, and, and you know, we're going to be talking a lot on the show about fads, health fads, and things like that. This is not a fad diet for use with epilepsy. 
it is well established. Right. I said a hundred years of of data on this is well established. It works. We know for sure that it works, and so the. But works at doing what? Like works at reducing the number of epileptic seizures or works at like... Yeah, absolutely. No, it definitely uh, reduces seizures and sometimes eliminates them completely. So over half of children who go on the diet, okay, have at least a 50% reduction in their seizures. Okay, so in over half of patients, it works to a significant degree. And probably 10 to 15% can become seizure-free. And so that, those, are, those are pretty good numbers because we only really use it in patients who are what we call medically refractory. Uh, we talked about this on the cannabis episode. So once you've tried several anti-seizure medicines, pills that you take every day, if they don't work, your chance of having no seizures after trying another third pill is very unlikely. So you need to think outside the box. So the ketogenic diet is one of the things to think outside the box from because 10 to 15% chance of becoming seizure-free on the ketogenic diet is way better than trying another medicine and then another medicine and then another okay. medicine. And that's why we think about it. Now, just to be clear, and this is one of the main points I want to tell you, especially this very strict form of diet, you can't just start it on your own. There are potential side effects, and you also need to have... Uh, a dietitian or a nutritionist monitoring you who knows what they're doing uh, because these kids who are on it have, a, have the potential for, and it's adults too, but it's mainly used in children. They have a, the ability to, or, or they're at risk for having a lot of complications. So they get constipation. They can get vitamin deficiencies because you're not eating the regular amount of nutrients. So you have to give the vitamin supplementation. Uh, you can get kidney stones sometimes, especially when you're first starting, you can get like vomiting, nausea, decreased level of consciousness. And another thing to remember is these patients with epilepsy, if they take any carbs more than the, you know, 4% that they're supposed to, that can provoke seizures and sometimes prolong seizures, which last half an hour to an hour. So they really need to be strict. So you can imagine there's some limitations as well. What are you going to do when you're sending your kid to school, right? You know, I know now in COVID, there's no lunch sharing, but it used to be like, Bologna oh, give sandwich, me your yeah. uh, brownie. I'll give you my cupcake or things like that. Yeah, that's right. And so you can't do things like that. So it's a lot of uh, strict monitoring for the families. They have to monitor the kid's blood sugar because you're not taking in carbs. You're waiting to mobilize fats. Your blood sugar could drop dangerously. So definitely works for seizures, but there are some things that need to be monitored. They also have uh, some lesser kind of strict levels of it. There's a modified Atkins diet, which is kind of similar to the uh, Atkins diet that you may have heard about, which is another kind of high fat, high protein, low carbohydrate diet. But this one is modified from the Atkins because you have uh, much less carbohydrate use than the typical uh, Atkins diet. And so um, and, and we have sort of different levels uh, of the diet if you can't adhere to um, the typical classic ketogenic diet. I'll give you a typical menu, right? This is what a typical kid could have in a, in a day. And this is for epilepsy specifically, right? No one should go put their kids on this for no reason, right? Okay. Exactly. And, and, and this is one thing we have to be careful about uh, with some of the other disorders we're talking about. So for breakfast, you could have eggs with heavy cream, some cheese, some butter, and maybe a very small serving of fruit, right? Because you're trying to just get that 4% of carbs. So the fruit's going to be giving you the carbs. Lunch, you could have a hamburger patty 
no bun, obviously, right? With some cheese, some broccoli, uh, green beans, maybe uh, melted butter on that. Because again, we're trying to get some calories from fat. So heavy cream butter, and then maybe some whipped heavy cream on the side. So we're talking about you're a chef, you know, I'm talking about when I'm talking about whipped heavy cream, I'm talking about you buy heavy cream at the store. You pour it into a in the container and you whip it up with an electric mixer. I'm not talking about whipped cream like Cool Whip, which has tons of carbs in it, right? I know you know that, but our, our listeners may be misunderstanding. <laughs> that they, oh, it's delicious. I could just eat Cool Whip all day. For dinner, a grilled chicken breast with some cheese, maybe some mayo on that. Uh, you make a sauce out of cheese and mayo, some vegetables, and then probably some whipped heavy cream on the side. A snack could be some... Uh, whipped heavy cream, mm. maybe sugar-free gelatin, like a Jello, uh, and maybe a little bit of fruit to, to get your 4% carb. I'll be honest with you, it sounds pretty good, except for that chicken breast, which is super lame, but otherwise it sounds uh, You need more flavor than the, chicken breast, I, than the chicken breast? Yeah, exactly. Come on. Huh? Let's, uh, let's live a little, for God's sake. But, uh, you know, Ephthemios, that buddy of mine, actually had sent me, um, just because of my curiosity, he said, by the way, this is what a keto bun looks like. So this is made with like sort of... Uh, Psyllium flour or something like that with the epileptic diet exactly they're not so this is this is where okay. we're getting into this the use of it for other things right uh and so mm -hmm. let's talk about it for weight loss because that's what your your body used it for right probably weight loss um yeah. lose the fat he wants to try and look good and in that combination with his working out and so the the stuff you see online will have these keto buns, keto pasta, things like that, um, and, and they'll mm -hmm. use these substitutions where they don't really work for um, the patients who are on the strict ketogenic diet. I would say a ketogenic diet for weight loss would be about seventy percent calories from from fat, so which is a bit less than these. So still a lot from fat, but then twenty percent protein so, uh, and about ten percent carbs. So still low on the carbs, but Get, allowing a bit more and, and definitely more protein. And that sounds more amenable to the average person taking it, right? So not quite as restrictive, sure. but you have to be careful. And there are variations of what people do for keto for weight loss, right? It's not all one size fits all. I just told you kind of a standard one, but people may use maybe more strict or less strict. If you're becoming more strict and acting more like the one we use for epilepsy, then you got to be careful. Are you losing, are you getting enough vitamins? Are you at risk for kidney stones? Are you at risk for a lot of these long-term complications. Another long-term complication, which we don't know is you're taking very high fats, uh, right? Which will be high, uh, what we call lipids and high cholesterol, right? Mm -hmm. And we all know what's the problem with getting high cholesterol in your body over time. You get too happy. You, you experience That is incorrect. What I meant was heart disease or stroke, okay. right? And so, <laughs> I know. and so, Yes. What are the long-term effects of being on a diet for a long time like this, right? What are the effects of putting kids on this diet for a long period of time? But wait a minute. Why are you asking rhetorically? Because it's this, the, the epileptic ketogenic diet has been around for 100 years. So wouldn't we it's, have research on It's on true. What? But in terms of long-term use, we actually don't recommend it for long-term use in children who have seizures. So what happens is when, oh, I, uh, hey. when they have seizures is we usually recommend about a three-month trial. It doesn't necessarily work instantaneously. So if you try it for about three months... If the ketogenic diet does work, you keep kids on it for about two years or so. That's the recommendation, and then you can come off. Some people will stay on it for longer. Some people on it for like 10 years. But in general, we kind of uh, try and limit the amount of time they're on it. So it's hard to have these long-term follow-up studies 
uh, into adulthood. And again, it's not just following them into adulthood. You need to follow them into their 60s and 70s, right, to see if they're at an increased risk of atherosclerotic disease compared to somebody else. If it doesn't work after three months, you kind of mm-hmm. take it off. Okay. And so for weight loss, you would say the same thing. And and, and I guess that's where, I guess, a, a ketogenic diet for weight loss becomes kind of a a fad too, because doctors such as yourself would not recommend it long-term and, and diets don't work because they aren't sustainable long-term. Is that right? Well, yeah. So if you look at the evidence for the ketogenic diets, uh, probably if, if you compare it to other kinds of, of diets, you may lose one to two kilograms more, which is like you know, two to five pounds more than other types of diets. And the other types of diets that we talk about are uh, low fat type diets, right? Uh, mm. or, or just low calorie diets, right? You decrease your caloric intake. So you yeah. might actually have slightly more weight loss. I'm not quite sure two to five pounds makes a big difference for people uh, when some you're talking people about it. It does. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'd appreciate some of that. And, but the problem is long-term follow-up studies are tough. In some of the studies of the ketogenic diet, the weight loss peaked at five months, but it's not often sustained. And why? Because, you know, the, what I explained to you in terms of diet sounds pretty good in the short term, but it also means for, for say, you know, the average person, no pizza, definitely no alcoholic drinks, um, mm. no pastas, no breads. And so a short term is possible, but longer term, it becomes more difficult. And again, long term follow up studies on these patients, we don't really know what happens to them over time. Right. Well, these three actors who I was with, all three of them vegan keto. And uh, I mean, I, I haven't even dove into that world to really understand it. I understand the world of vegan, veganism. Vegan keto is, is a little bit crazy, but I'm sure a lot of avocado and a lot of coconut milk. But um, also, they, they don't drink. They don't drink at all, but they eat a lot of, uh, eat a lot of chocolate. So when we when we look at these types of uh, diets, you know, we want to kind of look at all the different studies that go on. So we kind mm-hmm. of look at what's called uh, a systematic review. These systematic reviews or meta analysis can combine a bunch of studies together and then you can issue guidelines on that. So a lot of the studies that have been looked at for the ketogenic diet, like I said, they the conclusions are really that they they're not really superior to other weight loss diets for for losing weight and maintaining it. Will you lose weight on it? Yes, that's true. You do lose weight on the ketogenic diet. And if you can sustain it for a long period of time, then you can hopefully keep the weight off. But uh, again, right. we in terms of long-term effects of being on that, it's it's a good point. And, and that kind of brings us to um, diabetes and is the ketogenic diet useful in diabetes? So let's just take a step back. There's two types of diabetes as we talked about, right? There's type 1 diabetes, which is often occurs in kids as a juvenile onset. It doesn't have to. You can get it when you're later. And those patients have a decreased production of insulin, right? And we need insulin to put sugar that's circulating in our body, glucose, right, into our cells, okay? So they don't have insulin. Type 2 diabetes occurs in older people. That's one one that kind of runs in families a bit more. It's linked to obesity. And it's linked to every second brown person you've ever met in your life. Very common in in South Asians. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and... 
for for that the type 2 diabetes what happens is you have what's called insulin resistance so insulin doesn't work as well in your body for various reasons and so uh, that's the kind of difference between the two and the important thing to remember is type 2 diabetes can be associated with obesity so again let's look at some of these systematic reviews they put together a bunch of studies and they kind of try to make some guidelines for it so what does it say they say reducing carbohydrate intake with a low carbohydrate diet like the ketogenic diet can reduce body weight in patients with type 2 diabetes. So it reduces your uh, body weight and it can improve glycemic control uh, and maybe even works better than the more restrictive you are with like a keto, a full keto diet. But it may not be appropriate for everybody, right? Because people with obesity also, we know, have a risk factor such as um, uh, high blood pressure. High, well, high blood pressure, and they're at risk for heart disease and stroke through atherosclerosis from cholesterol and 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 fat deposition in their arteries. So, you know, is it a good idea in those patients? And we don't know because we don't have uh, long term studies. And, and so, with these type two diabetic patients, it may work, but it becomes unclear. The type one patients are even more difficult to kind of know about because, uh, and I, uh, one of my good friends is a pediatric endocrinologist, so sees patients with pediatric diabetes, and I was talking to her about it, and she was saying, you know, a lot of families want to do this because a problem in diabetes is glucose fluctuations, right? You eat a high carbohydrate meal, and your glucose goes way up, and now you got to bring it down with insulin. And you're kind of always trying to balance these things out, but patients on a ketogenic diet will have less glucose fluctuations in their blood and they're going to be better controlled diabetics. So the the argument that it, it causes better glucose control is very valid and it and probably does. The issue again, so now they're not just going to use it for two years though, right? This is going to be ongoing ketogenic diet starting in childhood and using it for the rest of your life because type 1 diabetes is a lifelong condition. Mm-hmm. And so what happens over time, and that's why they're hesitant to use it, but a lot of families are, are, are asking about it. And so I, I think it's currently a bit of a, a source of debate in the pediatric diabetes world. And, and I think that's why what we need is more long-term studies to, to look at this. And uh, again, there seems to be a lot of varied opinion. There's a editorial, uh, an, a journal called JAMA Internal Medicine. JAMA stands for the Journal of the American Medical Association. So they have a, a sub-journal called uh, JAMA Internal Medicine. And their uh, the he- headline, the title of the article was The Ketogenic Diet for Obesity and Diabetes, Enthusiasm Outpaces Evidence. And, and so the authors say, you know, we have to be careful with some of the same things we talked about before. You're, you, could you worsen uh, the lipid profile? Could it affect growth in children? And they have this kind of debate. But the most interesting thing about this is the comment section. So hmm. the comment section uh, is not the typical internet yahoos who are commenting. Hmm. Right. It's all physicians, and don't get me wrong, <laughs> there's a lot of internet physician yahoos as well out there. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, it's, there's probably, I mean, every comment almost is from an MD saying, you guys don't get it. I've put my patients on this, and it's miraculous. Their diabetes comes under control. I take them off their uh, type 2 diabetes medicines, uh, and they just end up doing oh, wow. amazing okay and so and so uh you know 
I, I think but that's we, still anecdotal, even though that's a doctor talking. It's a doctor on an internet website talking about their patients. So for you, that's not evidence. That's anecdotes, right? Exactly. We uh-huh. talked about it before. We're going to keep talking about it every episode. Anecdotes are not evidence. And that's why it's great to hear that. And it's great that there's a debate. And if this can improve the health of patients with diabetes, like it did for patients with epilepsy, we need to, to know how to use it. It's interesting. You know, we didn't really talk about this. Uh, just in terms of wrapping up, but we actually don't know why the ketogenic diet helps people with epilepsy. So even though it's been around for hundreds of years, we still don't understand how it works in those patients. And that's how little we know about the ketogenic diet. Um, is it the ketone bodies? Is it the the low glucose? We don't know why it helps these patients with, with seizures. We know it works. We've proven it works. And so there's a lot of question marks. So just like with anything, um, Anything you do uh, to your body, especially something like this, especially if you're going to one of those more restrictive ketogenic diets, especially if you want to put your child with type 1 diabetes, we got to be aware of the effects, the beneficial effects, whether it be weight loss, whether it's seizure control, whether it's um, blood glucose control, but you also got to be aware of the potential side effects. And the only way we're going to know that is with further long-term studies. Always with the studies, this guy. He always wants the studies. I get it. I get it. Well, we'll wrap it up there. You probably killed the buzz for a couple of people who were excited to do some stuff around uh, ketogenic diets, but it's good. You gave them the facts. You gave them the facts. And I think, um, on the other hand, I was a ray of sunshine today and, you know, told a lot of people to become actors. Yeah, in fact, no, I didn't uh, do I'm that sure, at all. I didn't, didn't do that. that. Well, I- I was going to say you didn't do that at all because uh, basically you said a lot of it is luck. And so I guess everybody's going to be, uh, you know, buying their lottery tickets and, uh, you know, clutching their rabbit's foot, hoping they're going to get an audition for uh, um, the next big TV show or movie. It is a lottery ticket. That's what acting is. You could be the best and still be ignored somehow. But anyway, who's to, who am I to stand in anybody's dreams, in the way of your dreams? Uh, live large. Go to Hollywood. Go, go west, young women and young men, and, and, and make it for yourself if you can. So uh, before we sign off, Ali, any things to plug for you? I still got a book. I still got a book coming out uh, in in October, October 5th. That hasn't changed. And um, if you have uh, young children and if they're uh, interested in the forest of reading, that's something put on by the uh, Ontario Library Association, but it'll be online so everybody can have uh, access to it. I'd encourage you to look up uh, the forest of reading if you have young readers in your family and I'll be, I'll be hosting those in a, in a, in the next month. And so for all you listeners out there, please uh, subscribe to our podcasts on Apple podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps us. And uh, you can follow us on social media is Dr. V comedian on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, Let us know what you think of the episodes. All right. See you later until next time. Bye.